something I've been very interested in. A lot of people have learned, I haven't. You've been taking the boat to the O2 every day. How's that boat trip been? It's funny because I've been coming here for years and the boat has always been an option and I never, I was always like, the British weather is just dreary, London weather is bad, why would I want to see that, like why would I want to do that? And this year I've been doing it and it's been a game changer, really. First of all, the weather has been good, that's one thing. But the fact that we're in the O2 the whole time, you're in this bubble, you never even know if it's day or light or whatever outside. And I, I used to take the tube, so you're, I'm either underground or in a bubble for 10 days. Like, it's hard, you know? Are you planning on going to the cinema? Because in this bubble, you can live and never leave this bubble. That is very true. And I do plan on going to the cinema because this bizarre schedule means sometimes you have about four or five hours between matches. Uh, but the the boat has changed my life. First of all... It's a I big get... statement. A big statement. <laughs> it really has. It really. I am a very dramatic person. You will realize that. <laughs> This is Reem Avalel, we should say, tennis journalist based in Dubai. Reem is fabulous. Please look up her stuff, see what she does. She has some amazing stories that we are going to get to. But a boat trip being a life changer is a big statement to start things off. Because it's the little things. When you've traveled for 11 months, this is my 16th tournament of the year, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So it's the tiny things. It's like the bagels they put out in Cincinnati. You know, you look at the bagel and just a single tear comes down and you're like... (laughs) It's the little things, you guys. So yes, if a bagel can make me cry, then a boat can change my life. Something that nearly made me cry. In Indian Wells, fabulous tournament, they have donuts the size of wheels on a car. And you'd go in in the morning to the media centre and you've had breakfast and you're trying to be good because it's so easy at tennis tournaments to be bad because there is food everywhere. And these donuts the size of a wheel. And I thought, I can't. And every day I'd say, I'm not going to. Not, or maybe I'll take a quarter. Maybe I'll take a third. Maybe I'll take a half. These things, I mean, they are, again, it probably did at some point bring tears to my eyes. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, the boat changed my life because I get to see the sky. I get to walk for 10 minutes in the morning outdoors, not not in a tunnel, not in a, not anything. And I, I get to do some work on it because it's long enough that you can actually get some you prepare for the day if you want to look at the match notes I've been making these daily Arabic vlogs from it talking about what happened the night before I do them live because there's Wi-Fi on the boat wow <laughs> where, where are you getting the boat from from in front of the London Eye ah, okay. oh so that is a nice distance you get Wi-Fi good. on boats yes that's great because the players take it that's better than the, the tube we use Wi-Fi at stations at the tube now but do you yeah, and certain some. stations. You some can. on the Jubilee line have, but like, no, nothing like that. I mean, I literally do a live video with the Wi-Fi. What if it's a bit choppy, the water? I'd love to see one of those videos. <laughs> You're sort of bouncing yeah, up and down a, on the boat, cutter. swaying. It's not on a sailboat. It's, <laughs> I don't think a sailboat. It's, it's a cutter. It cuts through the water. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's <laughs> not. Reem is sailing in. I'm not going on a catamaran, okay? <laughs> like, actually, I legit sailing in a dinghy. I, I, I didn't think it would happen this early. But can we please now... <laughs> Can we please now, as I've talked about water and boats, can can you tell everybody, including Naomi, the, the Tim Henman story? Oh my God! Oh. I can, am, am I going to put you through that twice? Because <laughs> Gigi knows this story, but I've not heard it. Okay. <laughs> 
So there was this exhibition in Abu Dhabi. They created this like grass court in a palace that became a hotel. So it's very like, Abu Dhabi. Yeah, very Abu Dhabi. <laughs> uh, just telling her like Fortnum and Mason were the sponsors, of course, and it was like a British garden party kind of theme. And so of uh, course, Tim Henman. Of course, fits perfect. <laughs> yeah, there was Tim Henman, Pat Cash, a couple of other people. Oh, Pat Ma- Cash doesn't suit us as well, but Tim, <laughs> the quintessentially British. <laughs> Sorry, Pat. <laughs> there was Bartoli. Anyway, they, okay. they, yeah. So they sent an email, like the PR company responsible for the whole thing, just sent me an email saying, "We're inviting you to a boat, to a yacht." They said yacht. We're inviting you to a yacht, and you can sail with some of the players. Did they say sail? You can be with some of the players, <laughs> and you can talk to them if you want to, and hang out with them. I was like, okay, I'll come. So I put on a dress, thinking this is like a yacht party. We'll be sipping champagne and like just chatting, you know. And I go, and it's. It's a Volvo Ocean Race boat, a retired boat from the Volvo Ocean Race, and it's a proper sailing that trip. That was about to come out of retirement. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that day was arguably the windiest day Abu Dhabi had ever seen. And it was like, they were p- putting out like signals like... Uh, Warnings, don't don't go out to sea that day. And of course, the crew, because the person who was sailing that boat literally sailed around the world in the Volvo Ocean Race. So he's been craving any wind in Abu Dhabi. And he's like, oh, don't worry, this is perfect sailing conditions. And I'm like, okay, I have a dress and a boot on and stuff. So like, I, I they gave us all t-shirts to cover what we're wearing anyway. Uh, took off my boots, whatever. And then <laughs> the second we got, uh, Tim Henman was there, Pat Cash was there, and a couple of other journalists. And Yunus Alainewi, who's the Moroccan... Uh, ex-player so we get on the boat immediately it starts getting windy as soon as we're leaving like the bay (laughs) and the boat sails on its side so you're hanging on to dear life waves are pretty high okay pretty pretty high and I'm looking really tense (laughs) (laughs) I stopped breathing for a second I think she's ready for you to fall in (laughs) and I'm like so I'm like sitting next to Tim and a couple other journalists and we're all like huddled up and like hanging on to dear life Uh, and we look in the corner Pat Cash is in a corner not really moving (laughs) in the beginning they asked him to help put up the who wanted to help and he because it was still like it wasn't rough waters or anything but the second it started getting rough I think he had a backache or something he had a problem in his back so he's sitting in the corner with his life jacket just ha- didn't change his facial expression for a good hour oh. and the whole time we're looking oh, no. is pa- guys someone check on pat is he okay and then so anyway we were a bit scared but at the same time trying to have fun Eunice is playing around like he's a child having the time of his life like hanging his legs off the boat you know and having a blast and me and tim are looking like okay we look like we are like you know or something like we need to we need to do something so at some point they ask us you need to cross to the other side if they want to turn around you have all of us have to go on the other side tim's like i got this i'll go on the other side and then you got and i'll help you come over so like i can hold your hand or something if you're gonna fall it's quite rough so he does that goes the other side literally i'm the least graceful person in the world I cross the boat and just crash on him. And literally crush his bones. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm going to injure the retired Tim Henman. Like, how is this going to happen? And then uh, at some point I was getting seasick. So they told me it's best to steer back the boat. If you're steering, you focus on one point on the land and you'll feel better. I'm like, okay, but if I get up, my dress is going to fly on top of my head. It's so windy. And I'm, I'm still wearing a dress, you know? So Tim was like, it's okay. I'll hold your dress down for you. <laughs> 
So I am literally <laughs> sailing back to Abu Dhabi and Tim Henman is holding down my dress for me so I don't flash everybody. Oh, Tim. And as soon as I got off that boat, I was like, I am not going to be able to face Tim ever again. It was a few months before Wimbledon. I knew I was going to see him there. Saw him at Wimbledon, ran the other way. <laughs> I was like, yeah, we, we, we went through a lot together, you know, and there's a bond, but I do not want him to remember anything from that. Yeah, you, know, you don't want to speak about it. It's an unspoken bond. It's it's happened. So yeah, next. Oh, I told them next time they send an invite, they can't just say we're inviting you to a yacht. They there need to be specifications. Yeah. Is there a, is there a photo of Tim holding your dress down? Are you? Unfortunately, not uh, for you, but <laughs> thankfully for me, there isn't. <laughs> oh, oh, that's amazing. He's such a gentleman, isn't he? He is. I have nice. to say, he is. He is. Well, just to stop you from getting seasick. That's great. Was was he all right? No, he, he was all right. And he started enjoying it, uh, I think, as the time went by. But in the beginning, it was like, whoa, waves. Oh, we might fall. What has happened? It was so much going on. Wow. Especially in Abu Dhabi. This is the Arabian Gulf, you guys. There are no waves usually. <laughs> so it was all shocking to me. But yeah, I love that. Now, I, I don't know. I think this was you, but I'm not sure. Because Reem is, has moved her base from Dubai back to Cairo. Well, you've got a base Dubai and in Cairo. Was it you telling me about the tennis tournaments? Oh, yeah. In Egypt? Yeah, in Sharm el-Sheikh. Oh, you went there. I've played, I spent a lot of time in Sharm el-Sheikh. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so, remind, yeah, remind, because it, isn't it, you, There's do you like pay and you go and you stay and you... Yeah, so, so they used hmm. to have 50 tournaments on a year. They've reduced it now that the prize money's gone up because it just costs more money I think it's like 35 now or something. Yeah, yeah. So they used to, and they used to have men's playing in one site, women playing on the other site. It, it, it's great because it saves money because they're, they're the entry level. They're, they're $15,000 events now. They used to be $10,000 events. So I first started going there as a coach with my players because they were just starting out playing senior tournaments. Uh, and it's great because you save so much money because you only need to, you, you only need to book, obviously, flights there and back. Is it and all inclusive? as long as you want. Uh, yes, it's all inclusive. It sounds like I'm thinking about going there on holiday, but in, in terms you could. of, so you, you pay... It is very beautiful. Yeah, like, the could. Red Sea in Egypt is unbelievable I went into the sea after um, after a practice session because it was really really hot I went into the sea after a practice session and yeah there was a sea turtle swimming along yeah and if you just take a a short boat ride from there yeah uh, oh my god you're gonna it's one, like one of the best diving spots in the world. Yeah, yeah you see all the boats going every day there. and all Exactly. The, and and it's actually quite cheap compared to everywhere else. And that's what, but what you're saying makes sense in that all Egyptians play these tournaments. And it actually, it, when it first started, I was thinking, this is amazing. This is going to change tennis in Egypt because at least players who don't have money to travel on the ITF tour to get some points and, and go to challengers after that, they can go to Sharm el-Sheikh and play some or whatever. The problem was it became so appealing to them. They just never left. They yeah. just never, <laughs> never really. Honestly, they people, got stuck people at that go level. There for months at a time. Months. months at a time, particularly the Eastern Europeans, because it's um, uh, for the, most of the Europeans they have to fly through Cairo. We're quite fortunate because we can go. We go to loads of direct flights to Sharm El Sheikh from all over Britain. It's great. Uh, we just go straight there. It's kind of four or five hours, and um, yeah, and you just stay there for as long as possible. And, and also, it can be really flexible because you just enter all the tournaments, leave when you want. When you've had enough, you can say, right. Is the standard? Home. Is it a good level of play? The yeah, no, it's, it's some weeks and some weeks, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, I mean, essentially, anybody anybody can go. You, you're guaranteed to get in because 
the qualifying draw is, is pretty much open. If if too many people turn up to the qualifying draw, they'll just open up the qualifying draw. They want as many people there as possible because the guy who runs the tournament owns the hotel. So he's running it as, not necessarily as a business, he does really want to do the best by Egyptian tennis and he does want to uh, provide opportunities. Belinda Bencic played out there a lot when she got started and she's, she I remember hearing her say that she actually you know owes a lot to that sort of situation because back when I first started playing you could you could only really get a two tournaments together in one country and the amount of money you spend on flights you know getting around and traveling getting around the place was huge so it was a it's a fantastic idea really just to be in one place everything's on site I mean people will stay there for months and they will not leave the hotel complex they just they will not go anywhere it's, ama- it's amazing wow it is very interesting hearing it from, because I obviously had a view of that, but it's very interesting hearing you talk about that, because yeah. I know how it affected Egyptian tennis, mm. but I also know so that... So it was detrimental to Egyptian it w- tennis. It essentially, it is at the moment, because so many of the Egyptian players just stay there and do not leave, and then the jump, to the leap to the challenger level is quite big for them after that, and it's also, for them, it's completely new. Oh my God, now we're traveling out of Egypt to play tournaments. Oh my God, the level is higher. Oh, and So, actually, only three or four of them have made that leap and the rest of them are just hanging out in Sharm Sheikh, which is also a party place I have yeah. to say oh, yeah, that great. it is a party place because like there's one of the bays growing up this is where you would go they have a pasha a nightclub and it's like it's like a place where younger tennis by day partying by that's night that's the thing so I know that also if you are not very disciplined that might not help you being there for long no, but it's um, no. I, I mean, for me, it's fantastic. I mean, I, I have many uh, chats with him. Mohammed, isn't it? Mohammed Al Ghazwi. Um, he is, um, yeah, he's just a really fascinating person to speak to. I mean, it costs a, a huge amount of money to put on the tournament because if you want to put on a fifteen thousand dollar event, the first thing you got to do is find fifteen thousand dollars. You know, then you need to. Uh, you know, he owns to, the hotel. He owns yeah. the hotel. So that, that that's the thing. Soho is he, Square, is it called? Where? Soho Square is where the men are, oh. and the women are at Jollyville. Yeah. Or they were. We may have moved. Jollyville. Jollyville. Sounds, sounds happy. Oh, it is jolly, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's yeah, the Jollyville. Actually, in Egypt, it's like the Movenpick brand. It's one of the Movenpick ah, brands. Ah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're more, more than one. Yeah. And um, it, it, honestly, it is really brilliant, but you can kind of get institutionalised there. It does feel a bit bizarre. I mean, I've probably been there seven or eight times separately for maybe three to four weeks at a time. Um, and uh, but it's fantastic what it does what it does for the young players. It's, it's the it, it makes complete sense. I think it really helps all of the British players go out and play there. I know Emma Brody. I remember yep. seeing her in the draw there a few times. Everyone, all of our youngsters go out and play there now. Um, it's uh, it's just a it's a really uh, key, yeah it's a really key thing for them to do just because they can get back to back. Uh, tournaments in one place and get used to the, the, the courts and things but as you say it does present the issue when you go into the challenger surface um, tour if when you jump up to 25ks or 60ks there really are very rarely back-to-back tournaments in the same place you have to change time zones and you have to change surfaces very very quickly and if you make the final of one you could potentially be playing the next day in a totally different country so it, it I agree it, it's really good to a certain extent but but like anything it just has to be managed by the coaching team right you just have to understand what it is and I would never recommend Brits go out there for more than three weeks at a time but a three-week block is great. What is the state of play with tennis in the Middle East how do you see it now and, and where it is and maybe what can be done do you think from because you work in it you see it all the time I think one important thing to is to differentiate uh, within the region North Africa 
and the Arabian Gulf are completely different in general, in the sense that the countries in the Arabian Gulf, which are like UAE, Qatar, they have a lot of money, whereas North Africa is poor. So essentially, there's a lot of talent and passion for tennis in North Africa. We're talking in particular Egypt, Tunisia, Morocco. Um, these are the main three. Lots of tournaments in Tunisia as well. True. And Morocco has yeah. several challenges. Actually, Mor- Morocco helps because they give wild cards sometimes to Egyptians in the challengers, and that really makes a big difference. I know, actually, the Egyptian guy, Mohamed Safwat, his uh, his first final challenger final wasn't a Morocco challenger. It really makes a difference, you know. Um, whereas the Dubai and, uh, Dubai and Qatar and Doha are very different in the sense that they needed to use sport as a tool for various things. They used sport as they want. Dubai wanted to have sports tourism because they realized, okay, we don't have oil like Abu Dhabi does, and we want to make Dubai a tourist destination, which essentially it is now. And part of it was sports tourism. So the big golf tournaments, the big tennis tournaments, all of that really was a game changer for them. Uh, and uh, and they did really well with that. But at the same time, if you ask me, are there any Emirati tennis players? Not really. Is it a little bit? We were talking about this with British tennis, and I was asking Naomi. You get that the, the cliches of well, it's too comfortable a life in England. So they don't need to maybe work as hard. Maybe they're coming for the Soviet Union. We hear the stories of the trials and tribulations. Have is it? Can you put that anywhere near the likes of Dubai because the money is there, so maybe they don't have that drive and desire? It's just, yeah, honestly, even they say that. Even like if you speak to Emiratis who like sport, they will they will say it about themselves. They would be like, in general, across sport, not just for tennis. You need to do a lot, make a lot of sacrifices for sport. You need to be super disciplined, and it's not easy. And also, the weather there doesn't help because a lot for a long stretches, it's too hot. It's too hot to be outdoors. So they're used to being in air-conditioned bubbles, you know. And there aren't that ma- there aren't that many for a country that's that hot. There's like one indoor court. Really? Yeah, I'm not kidding. Like, there really isn't. Like, so the thing is, there is no proper tennis programs that would lead to creating a champion, for example, in the UAE. Okay? They try, but they don't even have a big budget because the interest, everything, all the interest in sport usually comes from above there. So if the Royals support a specific uh, sport, it will get a lot of funding and there's going to be a lot of interest, which is great because they did that with cycling, for example. Like the Crown Prince in Dubai is big on cycling, so everyone got on a bike, you know what I mean? So they do have that impact on people, but tennis is not necessarily driven in that sense so that's why the and the owners of the tournament in Dubai are Dubai duty free whereas the owners of the tournament in Qatar it's the federation so when you see it when it, if it's not being used as a business I see it a little bit in Qatar where they actually do have grassroots programs and stuff it's a bit better is it um is it like is it like with our royals then because if Kate Middleton wears a dress it like sells out instantly is it a similar sort of thing as if, if they're doing I, something everybody kind of goes oh okay we it happens with that. food like there, I know oh, there's like okay. a burger truck that was on the beach <laughs> that one of the shakes went and became super popular and oh. it's been years now and it's it's really it's a really good food truck by the way right. it's not like it's bad it's like the royal seal of approval but yeah it's it's they set trends okay so another thing with the UAE that's very tricky that maybe people don't understand the locals are only 10% of the population the rest is an expat community and it's such a transient place that people stay there for two years and they leave and others come and they leave like nobody not many people think I'm going to go and stay in Dubai for 20 years they go you you wing I didn't know I was going to stay there for seven years like I didn't expect that so when people tell me 
oh, the, where are the players? Why is there no... There's no continuity, you know what I mean? If someone's there for two, for two years, you're not retaining your the same fans over a very long period of time to get to invite them to the tournament every year or tell them to come buy tickets, you know? So it's a very different kind of dynamic. North Africa is completely different. North Africa, we have so many courts and we've got so many kids playing, but we don't have the money and we don't have any funding at all. So everyone is on, every man for himself, basically. You, you fund your own career and... There was a massive currency devaluation in Egypt a couple of years ago, and literally now one Egypt one dollar is eighteen Egyptian pounds. So that w- it was dramatic. So nobody can afford to go anywhere. That's why Sharm el Sheikh is a godsend because you're staying in the country. And for most people, during December, take some time off, switch off. For you, it sounds like it's your busiest time because you're in Dubai and you talked about it's it's not all full of lo- it's people who arrive and a lot of the tennis players come in. So Reem's getting sort of calls and messages saying, do you want to come and spend an hour with Federer? Do you want to come and spend an hour with Djokovic, etc., etc.? Which is amazing access. It's yeah. I have to say, every, everyone switches off in December. For me, it's the busiest month. First of all, there's a 100K women's tournament to help there. I don't know if you've been mm-hmm. there. I didn't play that one. No. So it, it's very cool because it's right on the beach. So I can literally, in between interviewing people, I go swim and come back. Like it's heaven. It's great because the courts are really right That's next to the water. That's the dream job. Just going for a swim. I'll be back at the end. Honestly, I'll be ready. I always have a bathing suit on when I'm on that tournament, just because <laughs> you never know when I have a window. But it's cool because last year, for example, the final was Belinda Bencic against Ayla Tomljanovic, and I got to sit with both of them. I got to film their practices. I got to film parts of the matches because nobody really owns the TV rights for that and they let me film and I get to I got to do all these video packages with players you know who are going to have tr- building up for a strong 2018 and look where Belinda, Belinda and Isla are now you know and so it gives me that opportunity and every year I've had so many cool opportunities being at that tournament sometimes they invite players who aren't even playing to show up because they want to use the facilities to train so like Yelena Jankovic is always there because she knows the owner of the hotel really well and he always invites her to the play there um uh, mario ancic was there once just because he's like a, his brother used to be the recreational manager at that hotel <laughs> it's who you know isn't it yeah. so i feel like reem reem knows everyone <laughs> when it comes to who you know everyone reem knows no, you know really dubai is a very small place you guys it's easy to know anybody yeah. but but it's cool because really there are a few courts that where that's where the the, the tennis players go to and you got a cool opportunity last year I spent time with uh, Anjashka Rodvanska who was training at actually the reason I knew she was there is that I spotted her on the beach like ah. so, uh, training and then I, I texted her agent and I was like if she doesn't mind can I come to her practice and and she was very cool like she told me don't stay the whole practice but show up for a bit and film you've even been in the pit lane at a Grand Prix and bumped into tennis players yes <laughs> Maria Sharapova was at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix was it last year or the year before really? I can't remember I think last she year she likes a Grand Prix no because she has something with Porsche uh, and they so she was doing it's all business yeah, she was doing something with, uh, I think, Nico Rosberg. Sure. Uh, they were some sort of promotional thing. So she showed up in the, in the paddock. The and dream was, was there. And I was there. <laughs> uh, and Roger was there the year before. And that was his first, because I remember he saw me. He was like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm here every year. What are you doing here? He's like, it's my first time. And then a while later, he was like, tennis is better, right? <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, uh, yeah. 
Has tennis always been your number one sport? How did you get into the, the whole sport? Because I say you've covered everything. Do you do show jumping? Oh, you've yeah, covered everything. I've covered. covered everything. Except cricket. I always drew the line at cricket. No offence to cricket. But. So we can't tempt you that. to do a little bit of cricket reporting? <laughs> no, they've tried. It's one of those sports that I intentionally chose not to know anything about because I knew that where I used to work, if you know a tad bit about anything, they're going to put you in it. And I was always like the most versatile person. Like, I was doing swimming and athletics and show jumping and everything. And I was like, no, I have to, I have to draw the line somewhere, guys. <laughs> and I drew it at cricket. So tennis wasn't, it wasn't the first sport or it always no, has been I'm, the base? I'll tell you what, even since I was a kid, like it was always one of my favorite sports. And, and no, it's how I started. Tennis was how I started in Cairo. Actually, it was how I started getting into tennis writing, uh, sports writing. And then even when I was doing all these other sports, tennis was always what, I, at least I had a, a weekly column or a day or whatever. Like, oh, what was your column called? You did a ah, the one in the, 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 the Formula One. <laughs> the Formula One one, Bits from the Pits. Oh, yes. <laughs> don't you think that's the best name? Bits from the Pits. Bits from the Pits. I don't think I can take credit for naming that. I think someone in the, in the newspaper named it that, but I loved it, yeah. Yes. Better than Bits in the Pits. Bits in the Pits? Bits I think both would work. Bits yeah, in no, the Pits, Bits from the Pits. Bits from the Pits, so it's like from the pit lane, and I'm giving, getting you some bits. And it was all about who was there, and, and I would just literally randomly find the most random football players and football managers walking around the paddock, and every you can go speak to anybody, so I would stop them. And I do remember once Ronaldo, Brazilian Ronaldo, was there, and I went to speak to him to put him in the column, uh, and he pretended he doesn't speak English, and then two models showed up, and he started speaking to them in English, and I was so offended. Yeah. <laughs> Did you put that in the column? Did you kind of allude to the I don't remember. It was, it, I think it was my first Formula One, so it was like eight yeah. years ago or something. It was a while ago, but I do remember that he did do that. And then in the end, I think he felt bad for me because he saw how, like, I saw the whole situation. And then he offered to, to give me a picture. I was like, I don't want the picture. I want to get a line for my... From the pit. Yeah, exactly. Bits from the pits. But yeah, I do remember that the first tier I didn't know because in tennis we have so many rules about who you can approach and yeah. not and this well, that's and that. what I was going to ask is that what is the... Uh, the access like in tennis in comparison to other sports because it's very we're very separate I think it's really it's quite a strong rule that the players need to have an area to be in and I was I was talking usually about Roland Garros when she was saying this year that you can just kind of go into the players thing you can have a pass but you can go and interview players in the players lounge which for me is really kind of unheard of the players lounge is a bit where a part where no one asks you for photographs, no one asks you for interviews, no one asks you for anything, and you can just relax. It's more or less the coaches, but you can grab the odd player there. But I mean, yeah, because otherwise there isn't anywhere that you really can just completely but relax. I but. think in all the slams, to be fair, most of the time, the because okay, we have specific access for for different journalists. Okay, so if you belong to uh, ITWA, which is International Tennis Writers Association, you you do get access to the players' restaurant or something. But there's always an area where you cannot go. Like even yeah. here, I was just there now trying to speak to a few coaches. I can be at the bottom floor of the players' area, but I can't go up to the restaurant. Right. So there, there's always somewhere. Yeah. And I have to say which that even good, when you do get access, and that's something I know for a fact from the U.S. Open. Even when you do have access, they give everybody access to the US Open very few journalists actually leave their desks make their way there to try and speak to a coach like you th- you i think the organizers think that we want to spend our lives around the players no it's we we only you want the stuff to do we have yeah, work and, and, and the only reason i want that access is it's a 
literally, especially at slams, the first couple of days you have 64 matches a day and you're covering so many matches and you're all over the place. You don't want to go and just hang around players. You literally want to go get a line from a coach and get out of there. So I think that right now there is a big misconception and it's it's especially these days we're kind of like locking horns a bit with some of the organizers of tournaments because they think that they need to deny us access and I'm you're like, going to go and just sit on uh, Novak like, Djokovic's lunch you know, table and go I'm just going to perch here we don't mine. we don't do Eat that I wouldn't I know all the players and I wouldn't even dare bother them when it's not a time where they expect to be spoken of to. course yeah I mean there has to be a bit of trust that you guys are going to be professional is it a problem that doing? there's a few do though and that Tarnished it, or are you saying that no one does it? It's just to be honest. I find I find that it would be very rare occasions because again, they actually don't give that access to every. The only tournament that does is the U.S. Open. They don't differentiate between a certain group or another. They just give it to everybody. But again, this year I was there. I would go a lot to speak to people, and I would never see anyone else there. The, like really, it is not a problem. Indian Wells is the same thing. Like they give us access to the rest, players' restaurant. We it was always fine. You would go, because again, these places are usually crowded as well. You cannot function for a long time there. It's quite rowdy and you you need to work. I mean, especially writers, it takes time. It's not like, you know what I mean? It's different when it's radio and TV because you do this and then someone else is maybe editing. Whereas with me, I literally have to transcribe the audio and then write it up. And then We don't have time to hang out, you know? But it's, uh, it's an issue. But with Formula One, for example, I have to say the access is amazing. Because... They let you sit with the drivers every day in these hospitality villas. So you're in the paddock. They have these villas where they invite the journalists to sit in round tables with the drivers. So the drivers who don't go to the press conference, they, they, every day you can sit with them for four days in a row in these hospitality villas. But also everyone else is fair game in the sense that VIPs, invited guests, blah, blah. If you can approach them, approach them. They have the right to tell you no, but you're not doing something wrong by approaching them. Mm. So it's quite different. When I first started playing uh, at my first Wimbledon, I found it amazing that I was told, as I after I shook hands, that I had 45 minutes as a maximum to get into press, basically. It was right, you know, as I'm walking off the court, it was, right, when do you want your press conference to be? So they do ask you when you want it? Yeah, and I was kind of like, a couple of hours? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it's 3.15, four is the latest you can do. I said, okay, well four then and I, I originally I thought whoa that's really quick because after the match I want to shower and change and talk to my coach and and eat and physio and stretch and 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 protein shake and and do whatever and also kind of get my head around what's happened and try and get my thoughts together because you you often have a very different opinion of your match post talking to your coach then you do that's why you have a coach is so that they can try and clarify what you think about the match because there's a mess of emotions and ultimately that's their job is to just clarify because hopefully you're smart enough to have some sort of idea as to what went on in the match <laughs> um and I found it amazing and then uh and then after my first Wimbledon I was kind of just a bit like I mean that's crazy isn't it and then um uh somebody was was explaining to me there's a lot worse in other sports I mean and then I watched kind of like the Tour de France or at some sort of cycling event I mean they are still on their bikes trying to navigate their way through <laughs> they try they haven't got off their been on their bike for eight hours they haven't even got their bums off their seat it must be excruciatingly painful did you like or not like doing the interview so if Reem came up to you after the match do you think I don't want to do another interview or did you enjoy it? you think yes he wants to talk to me uh I said yes to everything but mainly because I didn't realise I was allowed to say no. 
<laughs> so I just kind of, uh, I just said yes. And I ended up being there for hours afterwards, especially because doing the live segments on news, particularly, say, BBC South East, which is my region, and, and uh, Neil Bell, who was there all the time. And I mean, really, he was just kind of there for me <laughs> when I was playing. So I said, OK, I'll wait. Uh, and I'll do it and I always try to do as much as I could for my kind of region as well um, but uh, yeah I suppose I think that it's worth the entry level I know that the players have a lot of education especially when they come through young I mean I was I was part of the rookie hours and and pro use stuff but I really think that just giving a better understanding and maybe this is agents jobs or, or, or whatever but giving a better understanding as to what the press do because it just is a scary thing and it's really hard to to understand what they want uh, and to understand what you can do, what you can't do. Um, those sorts of things were, yeah, it was, it was really difficult. I just kind of found it all. I really enjoyed it because I've always been really interested in sports journalism. That's probably what I would have studied at university. So I've, I always had an understanding of, of the, the journalist, them, and, and would always enjoy trying to speak to them. But uh yeah, it's it, it's hard to it's hard it's, it's hard to adjust to when you're young, especially for me being British because the the attention at the grass course. I mean, it's literally like I'm in the top ten, and I was ranked 180, <laughs> and for for one week a year, I'm treated like I was in the top ten. So it, it's so out of context and out of anything at all. It's just uh, yeah, it, it it was quite quite challenging I just wish somebody even if it was a journalist even if it was somebody like yourself just kind of you could organize some sort of time to just sit down and be like right look this is how everything works I didn't understand anything I was just kind of ferried to and from press conferences and you do your big press press conference and then into a little room and then into a smaller room and then it's just, it's just why aren't why weren't all these people at the, set, the one place originally you just don't you don't you just don't get it I definitely agree that it would make a huge difference if there is a uh uh, before the season starts or something, it, even if it's not every season, but if every once in a while we we touched base somehow with players and started because again media is changing dramatically now. Every and I, now you can literally have a phone stuck in your face at any moment and all of these things. It is quite invasive, and I do understand that. Um, and I think that it would be amazing to to be able to directly have a dialogue between some players and some journalists to talk about issues. Okay, these are the issues that you are facing. So this is how our lives as media is changing. Because right now you look at how things are changing. Most newspapers are, sh- are closing down. Everything is digital. So everything needs to be immediate. Before you used to have deadline issues and stuff. You know what? Maybe deadlines are not that big of an issue now as it was a few years ago. Maybe the issue now is... Be, everything needs to be quick for a different reason, you know what I mean? Uh, everyone, even the way tournaments are run, you need to be a rights holder or non-rights holder, but if you're a writer, then you can't film, but if this and that. Now we're all, you cannot survive as a journalist, especially a freelance journalist like myself, I cannot survive just writing. I need to do everything. I'm doing videos in Arabic, I'm doing videos in English, I'm editing my own stuff, filming my own stuff, and writing every single day, which is a massive amount of work. But I'm constantly being told... I can't do this, I can't do this. And I totally understand when it's a TV rights thing. I'm never going to go film a, a highlights or any of the stuff. It's not what I want. But I also am valuable now to my clients because I am able to be a multimedia journalist. And that change is happening really quickly. And I think in tennis especially, 
tournaments are not really picking up on how quickly this is changing. It's also interesting because if you need to do so much more, it probably needs you need more content from people like Naomi. So therefore, the the demands on initially it was, can we just have five minutes and there's our piece. Now they might say, could you do a quick message or could you do this? Or you see the little bits and pieces that go out for social media. So it's your so you need more because you're doing more. And it's costing me more. I'm paying for it because no no news organization now wants to send people on site anywhere because all of the one of the things press conferences are being live streamed most of the time now. So if I am if my I mean if I'm an editor and a journalist comes and tells me pay for me to go to the U.S. Open when I know that you can literally be sat in Dubai at your desk watching the live stream of the press conference putting out a story possibly quicker than the people who are actually in that press conference, why am I sending you? That's why the access is essential. People think we want access for uh, stupid reasons. We have a nice lunch. Yeah. But I think it's something they could look at. I, I, don't, I just don't think that it's necessary to put out press conferences straight away. Just wait until the next morning or something, just to give the journalists We've lost a that battle. I think it's, it's we've lost it completely. Am I late to the party? Yeah, no, so really, because it's I don't think I would have done much good if I joined <laughs> the fight. But, um, no, but I was really, there in spirit. We did lose that battle because it already started a couple of years ago. It started with... Uh, Few, a few press conferences in Australia, now US Open, everything is live streamed. Most tournaments are, and it's a battle we're never going to win anymore, that like we have to move on. And the question is now, okay, then what kind of different stories can you get on site? Which is why for me, I always go for the coaches, I always try and talk to families, I try and talk to even fans. Like when I'm here, I always stand outside and speak to the fans. I try to do anything different. But again, I'm, I'm constantly being told you, you cannot do this. You can do this. Like it's. Uh... Who was the gentleman just blew you a kiss, Reem? Because <laughs> this... we're we're in the restaurant at the O2, and you might be able to hear plates and cutlery and everything. Who was the gentleman that just blew you a kiss? And he and he was trying to come back and two or three he was attempts very key. to, to very come key. forward until he left. That is the legendary Manolo Poyan, who is uh, one of the um, most well-known Spanish tennis journalists. Uh, he works at Eurosport, and it's funny. The reason I know Manolo is that he he loves me because he thinks I'm like there aren't many Egyptians around, so he finds me fascinating in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> you stand and stare at you. Like the, yeah, and so I used to live in Madrid. And I did a master's in sports journalism in Madrid. And my program was organized by Eurosport. I got uh, when, when they could tell that I'm keen on tennis, they told me you can go to the Eurosport office in Madrid and sit with Manolo while he's commentating. So my first ever experience in a commentating booth was with Manolo, who was cool. very nice. Yeah, who was very sweet to me. And uh, that was, what, nine, ten years ago. So, uh, yeah, now we're colleagues. <laughs> so <laughs> he's pretty awesome. Someone else who walked past, they weren't blowing us kisses. They were glaring at us, was our producer, Abby because we Abby puts together the podcast Abby likes it to be a nice length that she can just top and tail she was in here when we started she was looking at her watch I saw her a couple of times she's walked past four times now don't know if either of you have noticed she's walked past and the last time because there's a there's a bucket where people put their plates when they're finished she sort of drops the plate in the bucket and turned around <laughs> looked at me and went sorry <laughs> so I think that's our producer's way of saying Wrap are you going to be talking for much longer I, I am a <laughs> rambler I'm sorry you guys no uh, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> It's brilliant. It's absolutely perfect. So we we normally start before we record saying hello to Abby. I don't know. Should we end with an apology? I don't know. I feel sorry, Abby. I'm 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 Egyptian. We speak a lot. Like no, she'll she'll enjoy it. I think it's give great. us some of your shortbread. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>